The first account of this incident appears in the spring of 1828 in A Life of Robert Burns by J.G. Lockhart. In it, he claims that his intention was no more than to compress, within the limits of a single small volume, the substance of materials already open to all the world, and admitted that little touches of novelty might be present in his narrative. Since that sounds like a pretty good summation of this entire podcast, I hope you'll allow me the same indulgence. It is 29th of February, 1792. The dead of night. Forty armed soldiers, led by three men on horseback, pummel the sandy, marshy ground approaching the mouth of the River Sark, the little river that flows into the Esk and forms part of the border with England. The Sark isn't much to write home about, or at least it hasn't been since the outnumbered Scots used the rising tides of the nearby estuary to drown their routed enemy, the English, after a daring advance in 1448. The men approaching the mouth of the Sark tonight are on a mission from His Majesty the King. They're looking for smugglers. At the head of this detachment of heavily armed dragoons, rides the man who mentioned the Sark as he decried members of the Parliament of Scotland involved in the signing of the Act of Union with England in 1707. Fareweel to all our Scottish fame, fareweel our ancient glory, fareweel even to the Scottish name say famed in martial story. Now Sark runs over Solway sands and Tweed runs to the ocean to mark where England's province stands, such a parcel of rogues in a nation. What force or guile could not subdue through many warlike ages is wrought now by a coward few for hireling traitors' wages. The English steel we could disdain, secure in valour's station, but English gold has been our bane, such a parcel of rogues in a nation. Oh, would ere I have seen the day that treason thus could sell us, my all grey head had lying in clay with Bruce and loyal Wallace, but pith and power till my last hour, I'll make this declaration, were bought and sold for English gold, such a parcel of rogues in a nation. The poem, which would be taken on by Scottish nationalists, had been written in the previous year by a 35-year-old exciseman operating out of Dumfries. His name? Robert Burns. This is Scotland, a podcast about history and where we made it. I'm Michael Park. The Treaty of Union, so hated by Robert Burns, who, if you're new to the show, is one of the most famous poets ever to have lived, was responsible for the creation of the Scottish Excise Board. After all, when you have a product that people want, in this case whiskey, and you place a tax on it, somebody is going to decide that they don't want to pay it. The excise, let's call it tax for ease of understanding, was levied on both sides of the Scottish and English border. And on the whole, the people of Scotland were fuming about it. It was seen as the English sticking their nose into Scottish matters. And whisky? Whisky is always a Scottish matter. Suddenly, there was a better way to show up those pesky English, dodging their horrible little tax on the Ushkaba. It became a sort of game one that Scots would do anything to win. In fact, 
There were so many illicit stills in Scotland that most drinkers in the new United Kingdom were drinking illegal whisky, and to be quite honest, enjoying it more than what was coming from the heavily regulated industry under the auspices of the excise. Even the king himself was supposed to have a taste for Glenlivet, which didn't have a license. The men responsible for enforcing the taxation, the excisemen, were almost universally derided. It's not an exaggeration to say that people hated them. They were a symbol of English interference. And to be fair, being an exciseman paid fairly well. But there was every chance that someone might beat you to within an inch of your life if you discovered their illicit still. What I'm trying to say is that being an exciseman isn't Robert Burns' dream. He took the job because he'd become disillusioned with life as a farmer. He was relatively well educated and he'd spent his life up until that point, breaking his back ploughing fields in between writing and plough... Well, um, maybe I should say, being unfaithful to his wife. Despite being one of the best-known poets in the nation, Burns wasn't particularly well paid, and decided that the steady income of an exciseman was the way to support his growing family. By this night, as he rides at the head of 40 dragoons, he is an excise supervisor. He spends long days and nights riding on operations like this, risking his life to enforce laws that he doesn't necessarily agree with, and with even longer days and nights filling in paperwork and accounts. It's a real mixture of risks, being battered or bored to death. And so to this March night, as Burns along with Walter Crawford and John Lures rides towards the little brig which had been moving slowly down the river over the last couple of days. This area is a smuggler's haven. The silt in the channels mean that you have to be a very skilled navigator to make your way through, and the chances of navy ships coming into the estuary and rivers are relatively low, as are the chances of patrols being present on both sides of the border. The most important thing though, the people living along the coast hate the taxes and are more likely to help smugglers who get into trouble and hinder the excisemen. As Burns and his colleagues approach along the coast, they try to find small boats in order to board the ship. Weirdly, they find a coastline littered with small, damaged, unseaworthy boats. I wonder how that happened. The Rosamond, a schooner out of Plymouth under the command of Captain Alexander Patty, lies berthed a wee bit out of reach of the officers who have no choice but to wade through the water up to their chests, the dragoons with their guns raised above their heads to keep the powder dry. All the while, the crew of the Rosamond desperately fire grape shot from short carronades at the rear of the ship in an effort to keep the soldiers at bay. They continually miss, but only because of the way the ship is sitting in the water. In the years that follow, a romantic story will grow up about Robert Burns almost single-handedly storming the ship, sword in hand and capturing the smugglers in a heroic feat of daring do. It's not the only romantic story that comes out of the Rosamond that night, but we'll get there. The truth is a bit more mundane, realising that they're not going to be able to deal with their assailants and that the game is pretty much up for their whole smuggling operation. The crew take the decision to abandon ship. They'd already offloaded their cargo some time before. In fact, looking back from today, we still have no idea what it was that the Rosamond was smuggling. Although you can bet your arse that it was whiskey. 
but they realise that everything aboard the ship will be forfeited to the Crown, sold and split between the excise officers who made the seizure. So they drop a cannon through the deck and do as much damage to the vessel as they can before abandoning ship and making for the English side of the border. Being an expert in the field, it was Burns himself who took up pumping out the ship. He was joined by some dragoons to guard it on the equivalent of time and a half. Once repaired, the excise officers waited over a week for a high enough tide to float the vessel again. It was then taken, at his majesty's expense, to Dumfries, where it was dismantled and its component parts sold off. Burns had seen the extra effort of preserving and repairing the Rosamond as being very well worth it, not least since the money from the sale was split between the Crown and the excise officers, a profit of £122, around £15,000 in today's money. Even a wee taste of that would have done Burns, whose annual salary was around £70, just about £9,000 today, very nicely indeed. But there is one more little wrinkle to this story. The identity of the man who, at the auction, bought four of the small cannons that had been mounted on the Rosamond. The four cannons that, had the ship laid at an even keel that night, could have blown Burns and his men to bits before they ever reached the ship. Lockhart's account tells us that these carronades were purchased by one Robert Burns and shipped off to France to aid the revolutionary forces who were mere months away from declaring the First French Republic and just under a year away from putting Louis XVI to the guillotine. But there's no evidence that he did. Burns was certainly a reluctant officer of the excise and found an outlet for it in song, penning the deals a wall with the excisemen at some point that year. His employers were aware of this reluctance too. Probably quite easy to spot when you're writing songs about happy locals delighting in their local excise officer being dragged to hell by the muckle black deal himself. The deal come fuddling through the town and danced a wall with excise man. An Elka wife cries, oh my, who no wish you look at a prize man. The deal's a war, the deal's a war, the deal's a war with excise man. He's danced a war, he's danced a war. He's danced a war with excise man. We'll mark our mountain, we'll brew a drink, we'll laugh, sing and rejoice, man. A money bro thanks to the mickle black deal that danced a war with excise man. The deal's a war, the deal's a war, the deal's a war with excise man. He's danced a war, he's danced a war. He's danced a war with excise man. There's three some reels, there's four some reels, there's hornpipes and stress bays, man. But he best answer came to the land was the deal's a war with excise man. The deal's a war, the deal's a war, the deal's a war with excise man. He's danced a war, he's danced a war. He's danced a war with excise man. Write a song like that about your work, regardless of where you work, and your boss is going to start keeping an eye on you. In fact, Burns might have felt under pressure to prove his loyalty and joined a unit of the Dumfriesshire Volunteers in 1795. They were a force set up for home defence in case of French incursion. Burns was made a private. Presumably it was too much of a risk to give him any more important a role. But there's also the possibility that Burns, whose health was already starting to deteriorate, wasn't really fit enough to fight off landing French troops, but was allowed to join the unit because of his position. He remained in the service, right up until his death in 1796, drawing his final paycheck from John Mitchell 
the collector of the excise, a week and a half before his death. Dear Sir, Upon my return home, having been in the country all last week attending revenue courts, I found poor Burns was no more. He died on Thursday. The memory of so uncommonly rare a character is to be regarded at his funeral tomorrow. Having cavalry and infantry here, they are to attend in mourning and are volunteers to fire over his grave. He, with difficulty, came to the excise office on the 14th, the collection day, and got his salary. From his weak state he was urged not to come, but he would, saying once more he hoped to be able to go and draw it from me at the proper place, and I shall not soon forget his appearance and manner. Reduced and shattered as he was, in the extreme, his wit and humour remained as one instance some of the officers, as he thought. Looking at his hat, says he, I believe there is no stamp in the crown but pleads exemption as being in the quest of a crown of glory. To me, he remarked, I'm only 36, 10 of which only I have been in the world, and in that time, all I shall say, my good sir, I have not been idle. By your favours of the 20th, I am much obliged for your attention regarding Mr Penn succeeding to the vacancy. He has long given proof of being a capable officer, and has long had a footwalk, hence a preferable claim to any in this collection. I shall, by tomorrow's post, officially acquaint the Honourable Board and propose that the arrangement as, in my opinion, most conductive to the interest of the revenue. Respectfully, I am your obedient, humble servant, John Mitchell, Dumfries, Sunday, 24th of July, 1796. Robert Burns died on the 21st of July, 1796. But his story didn't end there. If you want to know the absolutely wild tale of what happened after that, then go and listen to Robert Burns' brain in our feed. You've been listening to Scotland. This episode was written and produced by me, Michael Park, and it is a production of Be Quiet Media. Additional voices are by David Allen, the music is by Mitch Bain, and Graham Johncock recorded a very special version of The Deals A War With The Excisemen just for us. You can get his book, Scotland's Stories, Historic Tales for Incredible Places, at all good bookshops. And presumably some bad ones too. Thank you to Gavin D. Smith, whose article on the age of the excisemen at scotchwhiskey.com was invaluable in helping to explain the era. And thanks also to Alexandria Burns Club and robertburns.org, which are always amazing resources when you're writing about the Bard. You can find out more about the show on our website, scotlandpodcast.net, and we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and very occasionally TikTok too. Find us by searching Scotland, a Scottish history podcast. Look after one another. We'll see you next time.